Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist, not speaking from my usual studio in Melbourne this evening, but I'm speaking to you from London, my old stomping ground where I trained as a urologist and spent some time as a consultant urologist and I'm back in London for a couple of weeks as part of my sabbatical. I've just started a sabbatical which perhaps we'll come back to in a future episode focusing on nuclear medicine and prostate cancer. So yes, as a mid-career urologist specializing in prostate cancer, I've seen the light and I'm going to turn myself into a nuclear medicine physician in some shape or form. Or so it says on the top of my sabbatical anyway. So I'm kicking off my sabbatical here in London this week. And rather than not be in the studio with uh, Renew, I've decided uh, to um, do a podcast from here. Uh, but I am going to say hello to my fabulous co-host, Renew Epen, who's back in uh, Melbourne. Hello, Renew. Good morning to you. Hello, Declan. I, I, you know, I turn up to work one day, you've packed your podcaster and you've just gone off. It's bizarre. I know. And so any of you watching on YouTube, yes, here I am in a hotel room in London, but I did bring my favorite uh, road podcasting studio with me because it's small. And um, I tracked down a few people today, Renu, who might come and do a podcast, old friends of the podcast who said, yeah, yeah, bring your podcaster into guys on Monday. We'll do a podcast and so on. So I have it here on tour. Never leave home without your podcasting studio. It's my new mantra (laughs) post COVID. That's fantastic. But you know, one thing that hasn't changed for me are the early starts. So thank you for that, Declan. Yes, Saturday. I'm very sorry. Saturday morning uh, in Melbourne. It's this, this one is worth getting up for. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. Well, yes, because you and I are 20,000 kilometers apart. It's 7 a.m. on Saturday morning in Melbourne. It's 8 p.m. here in London. But meeting in the middle, we have two fantastic international guests who've joined us on the podcast uh, to talk about um, a a really important subject, a little bit off the topic of GU oncology that we normally focus on, but really important nonetheless. And uh, Renu, I'll hand over to you and you can introduce or or welcome our fantastic guests. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's just been with shock and horror that we've watched um, the crisis in Ukraine unfolding over the past few weeks. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the stuff of nightmares, you know, you, and you appreciate how, how terrible it is, but not many people in the world can really truly understand the level of despair that these people are facing, uh, that the refugees um, in Ukraine who are trying to escape are facing. But there are two people in the world that truly understand this. And, and those are our guests today, uh, Dr. Laura Bukovina uh, from Fox Chase Cancer Centre and Dr. Alberto Castro. Um, both of us have joined here today. And rather than me trying to introduce them, I thought I might hand over to them uh, and let them give us a little bit of background about themselves and, and you know, what sort of led to their decision to, to, to go to the Ukraine-Polish border and, and, and help these, uh, these people in crisis. Um, Laura, maybe I'll hand over to you first. Welcome to the podcast, by the way. It's great to see both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you for dedicating this time to be a little bit off topic to discuss sort of our efforts and everyone else's efforts worldwide at helping the Ukrainian crisis currently. So um, my name is Laura Bukovina. I am a GU Urologic Oncology Fellow at Fox Chase Cancer Center, having trained at Case Western with Dr. Ponsky, who I know um, at least that clan is fairly aware with. Um, and I am Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine, immigrated at the age of 10, and still have family in Ukraine, uh, in Western Ukraine. Um, I, uh, aside from the Aside from the ties due to my birth, um, I just couldn't see 
couldn't kind of bear the the trauma that a lot of the mothers and the children were going through with this Ukrainian crisis. And the images uh, were just, as you said, just terrible. Couldn't sleep, couldn't think of anything else. So I couldn't, I didn't think that the efforts in terms of just doing something from United States were enough um, to help for me. Um, so decided to, to to fly in to Poland, the Ukrainian border, two days after the invasion happened, to help as much as I can. And when I flew in, there were no, there was no idea of what I was going to do. Even though I do, I do work with a non non for profit organization, and even though I am a physician, I flew in with all sorts of um, all sorts of uh, things that I could help with. So I didn't come in necessarily to help on the medical spectrum. I came in to help in any way I can, whether it's paperwork or translating or cleaning or cooking, anything that I could help to make this a little bit better. Um, and I'll sort of transition to introducing Alberto because I think that's, I kind of dragged him into it uh, willingly or unwillingly, depending on how he feels about it. But three days after I was there, I felt really fairly overwhelmed with because uh, with the medical support and the number, the sheer number of people that needed help. So I called in Alberto's help, um, have him having a pretty, pretty wide experience uh, in dealing with global disasters and uh, being a colleague, colleague at Fox Chase, and he flew in the same night as I asked him. And we were there for about two weeks, chugging along and helping the refugees as much as we can. Yeah, Alberto, so welcome. Well, thank you so much. I, I'll introduce myself rather quickly. Um, so I actually graduated from medical school a bit, about a year ago in 2021 and decided to do a research year at Fox Chase, which, which is how I actually met Laura. And I will be a resident in training at Temple this upcoming year in urology as well. Um, and then, you know, going into what kind of spurred my decision to go is not only Laura asked, but before that I had reached out to the Red Cross, the International Federation of the Red Cross, to be specific, I also reached out to Ukraine, the Ukrainian Health Ministry and said, hey, I'm here in the U.S. I'm willing to do whatever you guys need me to do, not just medicine, but also, you know, cook uh, I can't translate, I don't speak the language, but I'm willing to do anything else, clean, cook, uh, whatever you need me to do uh, for the people uh, migrating over. And uh, and I basically had no expectations, but I but I spoke to Laura and uh, knowing that she needed help, I was willing to go and once again do anything that was needed. Um, went over without any expectations and, um, and, and yeah, spent about two weeks there. And Matt, both of you have, have now returned back home and you've probably taken the first hot shower you've had in, in weeks um, and maybe eaten a proper meal. And I must say, when Declan and I just met, just met you on Zoom right now, the first thing both of you said is that you wish you were back there. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it almost feels guilty for us to be sitting here and uh, in a nice cozy environment, nice and clean, having a nice breakfast. And then all I could think of is the images of people coming in at night in the cold, it's cold, it's negative seven degrees, it's snowing, children, little children, two weeks and up, um, lots of kids. I mean, 50% of what you see are kids um, just standing there for hours, hours, days in, in this weather, you know, crying. And here we are just sitting. Laura, you yeah, posted some, Laura. Yeah, you've posted some amazing pictures and videos on social media, uh, bringing that home to us, these pictures of, of, uh, 
people fleeing across the border whose lives were normal three weeks ago, living in houses, going to school, having sport on, at the weekends, having electricity, yeah. running water, having mum and dad at home. And you send these pictures, which I suppose give the rest of us some sort of snapshot into it. But um, and these social media has been a powerful way, I think, of communicating the reality of these this terrible situation. But can you talk to us a little bit more about um, what you experienced on the ground? You're not somebody who is normally volunteered to put yourself in the in in these sort of conflict situations. You're uh, you're a busy doctor. You're a busy mum as well. I understand. And and you took yourself off to the far side of the world uh, uh, in the border, living in a tent, watching these people come across the the, the border. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. I, I mean, we have tons of stories to share, but, you know, I, I have three kids. I have three boys, uh, two, two, seven and 12 years old. And seeing those pictures of kids my age, my boys, they look like my boys, you know, 100 percent Ukrainian boys um, cross sitting there in the cold. I, I, um, I quickly made the decision with my family's support to go over. Um, my husband and my brother also came with me, and both of them are non-physicians, and they said, anything we can do. We will we'll work on supplies, we'll get trucks, we'll transfer people. And I can tell you, since I was there pretty much since the second day of the war, things have changed dramatically. And um, I'll show you pictures of how kind of things progressed. So what I can tell you, Eklund, is that there is no government support from Poland in these refugee infrastructure. All of the eight sites by Poland and Ukraine are managed by independent NGOs and on some level, perhaps maybe a little bit of city funding. So the government of Poland does not have a centralized system in terms of their declaration of emergency and establishing these centers. So all eight centers across the border are set up independently, are vastly different. So the the first thing that we did is we toured about four or five of them. And we looked at where is the need? Where is sort of, A, where is the highest level of people crossing? What do they need? And what's lacking? And how can we help? Because just putting yourself into one spot, not having, maybe there's another spot that needs you desperately and the spot that you're in doesn't need you. So we toured about four or five of them and we ended up staying at Medica, which is the sort of the busiest um, busiest border. It's actually the majority of the pictures you see in media are from that border site. Not only is it because it's the busiest, but also it's just poorly organized and there's nothing there. Um, and we, we've, we saw that there's a need for um, medical care. There was only a nurse and two paramedics there, no doctor at all for about 250,000 refugees coming through on a daily basis at that time at the peak of the refugee crisis. And then additional that, there were only two buses servicing 250,000 refugees. So what they do is they take the buses and they transfer the refugees from the, the actual border to a place 15 kilometers away, which is where the camps are, the bed, you know, the bed where they can register and, and they can be um, sort of set up with housing. The first two days, there were only one bus that was circulating for about 200,000 refugees. One bus every maybe three hours, four hours. In the middle of the night, there was no bus between 2 and 7 a.m. So between 2 and 7 a.m., people had to wait outside. And then the bus would eventually maybe potentially catch up in transferring people by around 6 o'clock in the evening. So you can imagine, and you've seen pictures of these people waiting in lines and lines and lines already on the Polish border. I'm not even talking about waiting for three days before the border, 
waiting additional day on the border already in Poland um, with kids. There was no tents. There was no warming tents set up. Um, they didn't anticipate a lot of these things to happen and the volume of people coming through. There were no tents. There was not enough food. There was no clothing. And then people were just just having panic attacks. Yeah. You know, people were having heart attacks. Kids were sick. People were having fevers. Um, there was no such thing as COVID masking anywhere. So everyone was coughing everywhere. And seeing that the first day, um, it, it just, it was, it, it was a nightmare. Oh, yeah. And then stories right. that I'm sure will, will change you forever. Um, Alberto, are there, is there anything that, that, that really sticks with you? I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure all of it does, but um, are there any uh, things you can highlight to us? Yeah, I just kind of reiterate what Laura said. It's, it's the same things that I saw when I got there. We were doing the night shift, basically. So one would argue that it's rather the coldest time of the, of the day, right? And uh, you see just a sheer number of people, mainly being pregnant women, uh, women with children and elderly, just standing outside, freezing in these cold temperatures, it's snowing, the wind is howling everywhere just because there's there's nothing around you. It's just field and a, and a, and a border, right? And, and like she said, there weren't any tents. There was no heating elements. So you see people just out there, uh, like uh, three days in, we saw a, a kid in just a fleece, like my fleece and nothing else. He was just wearing this and like jogging pants. In, in this temperature. So, so we quickly gathered up uh, different uh, clothing pieces and started handing it to him. I, I even said to Laura, I was like, give him my jacket. I don't need it. I can go back to the years and get another one. I, I'm in a tent at the moment. But the things that I, I kind of, the shocked me the most was the amount of time that people had to wait. Like she said, sometimes four days in the border, then come and have to wait more hours. And then you, you listen to, to the stories in, in my broken, uh, translating skills with my phone, you hear people saying, I've walked 40, uh, 40 hours. I've been standing for 20 hours. And these are people who are 87, 89 years old uh, or pre or women with four kids not taking care of themselves because they've forgotten everything. They Imagine walking all this time and you, can, you only have enough hands for the clothing for the kids and nothing for you. So like the things that they, we saw was people, people forgetting their medications, their insulin, not nothing taking care of themselves and just panic attacks uh, all over the place, but understandably so. And also the little kids talking about, I hate sirens. Like what six-year-old says, I hate sirens. We all know what sirens mean. It means bombs, right? But like what kid at six says those things, right? right. And, and those are the things that impact me the most. And people, I think, don't realize, they don't think, why, why are they just coming with no supplies, right? You see pictures of people just carrying a little bag, and they don't, people don't realize that the reason why they're carrying a little bag is because they're walking for three days, and they couldn't walk with their bags anymore. It's not like you're in a nice airport with nice, even ground. You're not going to be dragging your, your, your bag with you over the rocky roads with three kids. At some point, you're going to say, I can't do this anymore. I have to carry my kids over carrying my suitcase. So they would just drop and get a little like paper bag, like a, a grocery bag size of their belongings. And that's all they have. So they had, they've had, you know, they were well supported. They had nice housing, they had cars, they had everything. And this is all they have. 
with three kids coming through. They have no husband. They have they don't have a dad. Their dads and their husbands are fighting in Ukraine. They don't know if they're ever going to see them again. This is all you have from your life. And you have three kids depending on you. And you're standing in the cold. And just last week, you were sitting at home in your slippers with having a wonderful life. So it's just, it's just such a drastic change for people. And, and people don't realize the, what's going to happen in a week or two from now. Because it's all going to hit them very, very hard. That's one of the saddest parts, isn't it? Even if you walk the 40 hours and wait the 10 hours and cross the border, the nightmare continues. Right. You don't, you have no certainty, especially for people who don't have family in Europe or overseas. What is your next plan? You're going to end up in Germany or France or Poland. Then what's next? Who or your schools, your kids, your work? Where are you going to live? You don't know the language. Um, what's your plan B? And people will figure it out. As as the world has figured out, Ukraine, whether it's men or women, have big balls, right? We'll figure it out. <laughs> and we can we can do it. But I don't know why did this have to happen? Why is the world letting this happen? It's just terrible. And we're... Day 16, I suppose we should remind ourselves on a podcast of where and when we are, because people tend to listen to these things at different times. But day 16 is very early. I think, Laura, you got out there two days after the thing happened. So you must have had a dramatic sense of an evolving situation where they'd just about come over the border. A lot of people, me included, were couldn't believe this was happening. I was convinced he was going to drive all these tanks up to the border and then turn around and go home. I, I literally, for while you were packing up and um, going to Poland, I was literally still shaking my head as a European going, I can't believe he's actually driven over the border. Um, so you spent 14 of the last 16 days there. We're only day 16 now. And you must have had that same sense of, I can't, oh, now I can't believe they're, they're launching missile strikes on apartment buildings, on hospitals. Uh, and you tweeted out a picture a couple of days ago um, after we were all shocked at seeing a maternity hospital bombed. And there's a, a poor pregnant lady semi-naked on a, uh, a stretcher being wheeled out of a maternity hospital. So day 16 in and you get the sense that it's it's probably only getting going. So have you any any sense of the direction it's going and uh, what we might be looking at at day 32 a couple of weeks from now? Yeah, I, I am. So a lot of the Eastern. So if you remember the conflict back in 2014, initial conflict with the sort of the Eastern regions of Ukraine with the Donbass and Kharki, where a lot of people actually initially from the east migrated to central Ukraine. So there were initially refugees back from 2014. So all of the people have, who have now migrated from central Ukraine to western Ukraine, because we only have what have seen what about two and a half million of 44 million total population that has crossed the borders. So there's still about 42 million people that are in western Ukraine. All right. So that's so consider half of those are, are men that are ineligible to cross. There's still about 20 million children and, and, um, and, and women that potentially have the ability to cross. And a lot of them are in Western parts of Ukraine. Now, as, as Alberto has mentioned, is that you have seen 
more rockets hit today in the Western Ukraine. You know, people feel, okay, Western Ukraine, it's close to Poland, it's safer, it's going to be fine. He's only interested in Eastern Ukraine. And we all said he's only interested to come through the border for those two cities. Next, we said he's not going to attack Kiev. Next, we said he's not going to go as far as attack civilians. Next, we said he's not going to attack maternity, you know, maternity hospitals and children's hospitals. And he clearly has surpassed all of our worst, terrible nightmares. So what's next? Western Ukraine is next. So what's going to happen to the people who are currently being housed in Western Ukraine? They're all going to flood Europe. Um, and the, we're not set up. Poland is not set up. Hungary is not set up. Romania is not set up to handle this amount of refugees. Wow, it really kind of sends chills down your spine to, to think about it. Um, it's just I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it's <laughs> no words, right? It's just incredible. So anyway, you did speak a moment ago just to cheer ourselves up a bit. One of the things I've enjoyed reading about the last two weeks, one of the few things is the the fortitude, the resilience, the bravery, the good character, the humour of the Ukrainian people. I've known very few Ukrainians myself over the years, Laura, uh, but one of our close friends in Melbourne, one of our colleagues, Nathan Lorenchuk, who works with us at Peter Mac and Royal Melbourne, uh, is a, a very proud Ukrainian. Uh, we tweeted out um, our support for Nathan when we went and marched in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. Um, his dad Dad uh, fled Ukraine when he was 10 years old and um, started a new future for his uh, family. And as we spoke to his dad actually last week and he told us those stories, you suddenly get transported to the world of today, to those families you just described coming across, leaving menfolk behind. Hopefully, of course, they'll be reunited at some stage, hopefully in a in a sovereign Ukraine. But um, listening to Nathan and his father speaking about them, him fleeing Ukraine after the Second World War, um, was a stark reminder of the consequences, I suppose, of everything you've just described, this ongoing um, spill, this evacuation of Ukrainians. But we have all been extraordinarily struck by the resilience and actually the fantastic leadership we've seen from President Zelensky, who I think surpassed all expectations. He's turned out to be a fantastic leader. Um, and all of us want to um, embrace the Ukrainians and we all want to support the sovereign um, uh, aspirations of getting that country back together. Have you sensed that yourself as a proud Ukrainian who, who left Ukraine 10 years old? Have you sensed yourself the overwhelming uh, emotion that the rest of the world is showing towards you and fellow Ukrainians as we watch this uh, terrible situation develop? A hundred percent. There's just such overwhelming support from everywhere, um, from not only from the United States and the rest of Europe, but from everywhere. Every piece uh, of this continent is supporting, um, aside from maybe a few countries that are supporting Russia, but um, they're just supporting not only in terms of um, funds and um, housing refugees, but also in terms of just supporting the democracy and making sure that the Ukrainians are welcome in their countries. And you go from a small local level, think, you know, everyone at Fox Chase has been extremely supportive of us. Um, there's no such thing in terms of when you have to come back. The nurses at Fox Chase um, at Case Western, you know, in Cleveland and in Philadelphia, Philadelphia have just put independently funded 
have been sort of collecting funds for um, for for refugee support, have been sending supplies, have been getting medication, and that's all independent while we're we're overseas in Poland. And and I've been getting messages after messages after messages. How can I help? Whether it's for physician or nurses, how can I donate? Where can I send this? I mean, the amount of support is surreal, surreal. And uh, we'll put the links up here, of course. Uh, we've supported your GoFundMe page. I understand that's the best way to do things is just literally try and put some cash towards it. I've loved reading about these right. stories of people booking uh, Airbnbs. So I booked myself an Airbnb yeah. this, this weekend as I'm sitting here in London uh, in some you know ridiculously overpriced hotel room. I've also booked uh, uh, a, an Airbnb <laughs> in Kiev and I got this lovely message back from uh, the people who own it. So I think, uh, you know, the, that's what we loved about your social media campaign watching yourself and Alberto post these pictures but um, you did give us a way in which we could uh, try and support that so can you tell us a little bit more about that the the practical things um, that we can do to help I presume still supporting various um, uh, direct donation um, uh, opportunities like GoFundMe is still the right thing to do it makes sure that the money is being spent on spent on things that people need absolutely the most as they come across the border and we will push out those links but please share them with us. Yeah, so GoFundMe is the most direct and easier way for people to donate. They can certainly just donate the money. And what we do is we take that money, we we buy medication, we buy supplies for kids and women, and we ship it directly to the warehouse that we have in Poland. So there's no sort of dif- difficulties in transaction. We take pictures of everything that cut leaves United States where we purchase it. We take pictures when it arrives into a warehouse in Poland. Then we take pictures as we transition from a hospital or it's going to the border at the Poland border or it's going directly to hospitals. And we have green corridors set up, which means everything kind of goes in and out very quickly. And we have contacts that we trust, um, which we have verified because at the time of war, there's people who try to sort of take advantage of the war. And we have contacts set up in hospitals where we know things are handed off to the appropriate people. Um, and we part of why we traveled and Alberta was there to help us is to make sure we set up those contacts and make sure we set up the right, knowing the right people that we're sending this to the right place and not just sending it somewhere where we don't know what happens to those supplies. Incredible. And we'll make those um, those links well known so that people can continue to support you because you've, I mean, you started such incredible humanitarian efforts. And, you know, despite the shipment of so much medical supplies and donations, these are really only a drop in the ocean as the situation continues to evolve. And I think ongoing support is definitely needed. So we'll, we'll definitely get that out there. Um, you guys have been snapping pictures everywhere and, uh, and you know, some of your tweets are, are incredible and mm. like, you know, like everyone knows, a picture tells a thousand words, right? And some of the things that in my mind that I'll never forget are, you know, the, the picture of, the, of all those little kids in that, in that bomb shelter having like a kindergarten almost, um, that, was, that was incredible. Um, and the, the picture of, of that, of a mum carrying a two-week-old with two additional small children by her side and the picture that Declan mentioned of the pregnant woman being airlifted off this completely bombed uh, maternity hospital. Um, I mean, these are, these are incredible things that, that me, I will stay with me, but must have really changed your lives forever. And then my, my favourite time of the night was when Alberta was 
was playing kindergarten and, and feeding breakfast to the kids. Um, so it gets cold and there's no warming tents. So our medical tent becomes a daycare center. So we, we put as many kids as possible into our medical tent. And then uh, Alberta is really great with kids and teaches them English and he gives them breakfast sandwiches. And then we, so we have lots of pictures of that. And kids are so resilient. You just, even though they realize sort of what's happening, they're just so resilient. And you can kind of, you see that hope in their eyes and they, they really are the future. And we have to make sure that we take care of them. For sure. And you've given just, some hope to them in very dark times. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing about that time period when it's cold and, and, and those things, because like, despite it being a war, you know, like, like Laura said, kids are resilient, but also the elderly who have already gone through this uh, in one way or another in 2014, 2015, and maybe in the past as well. Uh, something that impacts me is like when we had the, um, we posted a picture on this. It was the elderly couple who were sitting there wrapped up in blankets. Um, and I don't speak Ukrainian, like I said, and sometimes Laura's standing outside doing, uh, you know, directing or doing some type of um, medical work. So I go in there and talk to them in, in my just hand motions. And uh, I needed the gentleman wanted a uh, chocolate because I kept on asking, do you want chai? Do you want this? And the wife would say no, but he could kind of look at me like, kinda <laughs> like yeah. So I would kind of play around like uh, sort of kind of tease them a little bit until like they gave in to like, yeah, okay, I, I want chai, I want chocolate. And you can just see so much joy in that little moment because it, it they sort of, I don't want to use the word they forget of, of what's going on, but they kind of put it to the side for a moment and, and, and taste chocolate, taste something happy, have something warm and, and just have a, a moment of peace uh, in this warm, uh, sort of warm uh, little tent. And this couple was, was extraordinary. This couple, the gentleman had a stroke, so he had left deficit, so he wasn't able to walk, so he hopped across the border because there's no wheelchairs. Um, so his wife, who's 89 years old, helped him hop across um, the border. And then we saw them hopping, and we just couldn't let them go. We just put them in a tent for a couple of hours, and, and apparently Alberto fed them chocolate the whole night. <laughs> I love that that photo of the two of them. There, they were they were a gorgeous couple, and um, yeah. uh, that that was a good, that was a great tweet that you put out. So, uh, another one that I love, Laura, was on International Women's Day. You posted a picture yes. of, of the Ukrainian army, the women in the army, which make up about thirteen percent. Um, and you said, you know, they fight not because they hate what's in front of them, but because they love what's behind them. Um, and then hopefully that will be the motto of all of us going forward. And that's very true, not only for the women, but you also see a lot of people coming from all over internationally to support the military, right? They, they come because they know what they're fighting for. They're fighting for the democracy. So like I said, we see tons of Polish, Canadian, U.S. Marines, um, Georgians, Belarusian coming through across the border to help the fight. I suppose Alberto would be part of that because this guy is not Ukrainian. He's not like, you're clearly a Ukrainian, uh, yeah. but yet uh, young Alberto um, uh, recently graduated from medical school, future urologist, um, never been to the Ukraine, I presume, Alberto or even Poland. Um, but uh, off you went on the mission to help Laura. 
So, okay, I suppose we all feel helpless looking at it, but for you to join Laura on that very worthy campaign is is a fantastic um, selfless gesture. But I think for other listeners out there listening to this story and those of us especially who've watched you on um, your Twitter feed and also we've I've seen you on the BBC and on CBS and you know telling the stories definitely matters. But I think for um, our listeners who are very global on GU cast uh, listen to these stories, you know, there are things we can all do to help. We might not all be the Laura Bukovinas or the Alberto Castros of the world who'll just get on a plane and go there. But if you can, please do. And you'll have understanding bosses like um, Alex Kudukov, who I want to ask you about in a moment. But if not, for the vast majority of the rest of us, please do go and um, support this as best you can. Uh, GoFundMe, we'll put the links in the pages or whatever other resources out there. But Laura, can I ask you about uh, your boss? Uh, so you're a fellow. Yes. So you're you're already yes. trained urologist um, from Case uh, Western and you're spending a year, is it, or two years at Fox Chase under the tutelage of the great Dr. Alexander Kutikov, um, the yes. chief. Who's and don't a... forget Dr. Uzo, too. Oh, yeah, Dr. Uzo, Rob Uzo. <laughs> the boss of the bosses. Yeah. Oh, he's still the boss. Every time I speak to Alex, he gives yeah. me the impression that he's the real boss, you know. But I forgot. Rob Uzo, <laughs> of course, is the actual, the big boss um, at Fox Chase. But Kutikov, you know, um, who's a great fella. He's a friend of the podcast. But... Um, I've spent a lot of time with him over the years. We're sort of the same generation growing up in global urology. He's half Russian, half Ukrainian, I think, isn't he? Yes. And yes. His, I believe his mom is Ukrainian and his dad is Russian. Yeah. And I know he's very well connected to those communities. He's often regaled me because he's a great storyteller, telling stories of Ukraine, stories of Russians, all all the sort of patience he has, very colorful. But I think that story is very typical, isn't it, of, you know, half Ukrainian, half Russian, yes. Belarusian. You know, it's Europe. It's small. People mingle. Right. You know, so you must see a lot of that. This is not just a straight line of you're, you're a Russian who wants to invade Ukraine or you're Ukrainian mounting a resistance. There's a whole mishmash of people in the middle who are torn with all of this. Who, who feel very strong allegiances either way. And I think the sort of Kudakov, half Russian, half Ukrainian, lives in the U.S. Uh, experience is, is not rare, is it? No, it's not. Actually, my husband's half of my husband's family lives in Moscow, so it's not rare. You, you, you have pretty much everyone who has someone, a family in, in, some, in Russia somewhere, and vice versa, they have family in Ukraine. And the same goes to, to Poland. My fa- half of my family is in Poland. So like you said, Europe is so, it's almost like states. That, you know, People in America have family that's in other states. People in Europe have family that's in other countries just because the borders are so close. So it, it's not a war of the people. It's the war of the, the, it's a political war, right? It's the people don't, clearly don't want this, even with uh, the way that the war is portrayed in the media and Russia. There, there is huge opposition to this war. There's people protesting on the streets with dire consequences. I mean, I, I have to tell you a story. One of our close friends here in in uh, in Cleveland, actually, her she's Russian, and her daughter was protesting in Moscow, and she was beaten so severely that she's day three in a coma currently, and she's 24 years old. So, um, people people don't want this war. And people are supporting of Ukrainians and people are united against it. Well, there you go. Look, it's been fantastic to listen to you tell your personal stories. And I'm sure, although you've landed back in the US, uh, both of you, uh, your hearts are still very much on the border. It's what you'll be seeing and thinking and getting messages about. And um, we love uh, listening to you and telling your story. And hopefully that will help uh, the rest of the world out there help 
do our own gesture, see what we can do to help the people of Ukraine. And all we can do is uh, pray and hope that the people, as you say, the the political people who actually control this, it's not the people on the ground, will actually find a way to have a resolution um, sooner rather than later. Um, Yeah, Renew. Incredible stories. And um, I think it'll be challenging for the both of you to sort of fit back into normal life again. Um, I think that will take, take a while, but but thank you for coming on and, and sharing your stories. I think it, it helps us to, to see the situation for what it really is. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Declan. Thank you, Renu. I, um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for us to go back. I'm already thinking of how I can go back. So we'll have to talk to Alex about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Thank you so much for having both of us, uh, letting us tell the story and also, uh, Make, making everyone aware of what's going on as well and how they can help. And uh, like Laura said, I can't wait to go back if I can. And I'm already looking for things to bring. I'm looking for equipment, uh, searching for tents, heating elements. I'm like, okay, what can we do here in the U.S. and get ready and go back? But uh, that, that, might, that might be a conversation for later. Stop collecting your chocolate now, Albert. Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> I already started. I already started. <laughs> Keep it up. I'm going to get on and c- contribute more to your GoFundMe straight away. We'll put the links up yeah, and uh, wish you all the best. And I hope you do both get back there, but hopefully uh, it'll all be on the wind up and you can enjoy better times there. Thanks so much to Laura Bukovina and Alberta Castro for joining us on GUCast today. Uh, we also stand with Ukraine. We'll put the links in the podcast. Uh, please do support the poor people of Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.